Straight to you from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome to Permit to Think. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a professional fisherman and host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures and wild fish. But I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way, far and near, and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after, a quiet mind and time to think. This ride is too short, so I'm gonna start exploring the stories of the people that have brought me here. I have been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Here we go. Permit to Think is brought to you by Off The Grid Studios. Everyone has a story to tell. Let these guys and gals tell yours, especially if the unconventional doesn't scare you. Visit offthegridstudios.com for more information. This episode is also brought to you by Ironbound Media, a veteran-owned media company that creates, distributes, and grows podcast series for brands and organizations. Visit ironboundmedia.com for more information. This episode is brought to you by GuidePointer. GuidePointer is a web-based software that gives your guiding service all the tools you need to manage business. I personally helped develop this software for 20 years and would have never been able to do my job without it, period. GuidePointer is a part of the Romeo Bravo software company. For more information, head over to guidepointer.com. Here we go. Our guest today is Brian Matthews. Brian and I go back 20 years, and to say we are tight would be an understatement. Brian went to Bowdoin College, where he was a two-time All-American lacrosse player, and I met him shortly afterwards when I hired him to work with me in the fishing industry. Oh, if we could only go back to that time. After graduating, he joined a VC as an analyst and became a partner six years later where he and his team backed entrepreneurs building incredible companies like Invisalign, VirtuStream, Teladoc, Venify, Talia, ServiceMax, and Peloton. Their most recent fund is one of the top three performing venture funds for the vintage. Today, Brian and two former partners have launched their own fund called Harmonic, where they continue pursuing the same investment strategy they created together over the prior 12 years, identifying incredible entrepreneurs and giving them growth capital to pursue their visions. He specifically focuses on founders in several markets, namely enterprise SaaS, FinTech, consumer internet, and healthcare IT. He currently sits on numerous boards but still finds time to fish whenever possible. He's that proud husband of an incredible wife, Anna, love her, and a humble father of four-year-old boss named Tucker. Love him. Brian is often the first person I go to with business questions. So who better to be the first guest when launching a show? So without further ado, please welcome Brian Matthews, who I also call BMAT. What's up, man? How you doing, Mike? Great Good. How here. are you? Good. Good. Like, thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think of the gig here? It's the, unbelievable. The I mean... Studio came along. It really came along. I want to set the scene for all the for all the listeners out there of what I'm looking at um, here live. And 
there's enough birds and fly tie materials to do <laughs> probably handle every fly fisherman for over the world for a decade. <laughs> uh, we've got about 50 rods up on the rack. We've got some great sports photos. I see a hookah in the corner, <laughs> a lot of permit pictures. This place is awesome. I might, you might find me in here if you don't expect it. <laughs> anytime, man. Anytime. I, uh, I'm constantly amazed at how you and I think alike and thought it would be, be fitting for you to be the first guest on the show, even though we come from pretty, uh, we started kind of in the same place, but then took extremely different paths. Um, and just wanted to, to talk a little bit about your possible involvement in the show down the line. I love it. I love this stuff. I live for it. Yeah, and you've done some podcasts. Yeah, just casual ones with friends. We do a football podcast, did some music trivia that got a lot of traction. Um, Anna and I did it together. Ton of fun. Yeah, the music trivia went big. It did go big. Got a little yeah. stressful. <laughs> <laughs> How many people were on that? At a at one point, we had like almost 97, wow. which for, for my league is pretty big. Yeah. I'm used to an audience of about 15. Yeah. The football. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Where you have a confined league that got a little viral. Yeah. And I was also thinking a minimum, I mean, who knows how our schedules will map up with this, but maybe we could strategically pull you in for some guests and some memories down the line. I'm sure we'll get Rob on here at some point. You got to get Rob. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get Rob. I'm available for anything and everything. I really enjoy this stuff. I like the creative part. I love the stories, talking to people. So whether you need me as a color man a pop-in, um, I'm there. I love it. Well, you're a busy man, so thank you for that. Um, what are your thoughts on doing this show in person, in person, you know, doing interviews as we're doing today versus online? I keep going back and forth with that because, you know, my adventures are ongoing and it would be a lot easier to, uh, to just ring someone up on Zoom that I met you know, recently and do a podcast with them as opposed to waiting for a possible date and time when they could visit Jackson. Yeah. In person's always better. There's no doubt. I mean, sitting in this studio right now can't be beat with you. Um, but I also think if you have the right person and remote is the only way to do it, it's better to do it than wait till by chance they're in town and you can do it together in this sick ass studio, some hybrid. Yeah, I feel like there'd be something lost, you know, I, I, I can tell. I mean, you, you probably can tell, right? If you listen to a podcast, you can tell if it's being done in person or if it's being done over Zoom or remote or a phone call or I can tell. Yeah, you can. Um, I mean, the way I do it is not nearly as sophisticated as this setup. I just use a phone app. And so the audio quality with so remote is never the same. Uh, but it sounds like a, someone calling into a radio show, so it's fine. They know it's remote. Um, it sounds remote, but you can still hear it. And when you have a FaceTime or Zoom and you can still see the person, that helps a lot because you have those visual clues. Yeah. But there's nothing that is better than being together in person. Yeah, and I guarantee you that people that are listening to this can feel the nervous energy of a first show right now. Right. I mean, I feel it. I feel it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, I think I pick up on that maybe more than others and maybe it, you know, maybe it's not, um, that meaningful, but it is to me. So my gut's telling me, you know, to go in this direction and thankfully, you know, we live in a spot where 
there's a lot of people to talk to, a lot of cool stories, and it's a place where people like to go. So very true. Maybe, um, maybe throughout, you know, time, uh, the people that I've, I'll just wait on some people. Fuck it. Um, yeah, well, we'll go in that direction to start. Always give them a shot. You can always do one. If it's not great, you don't have to push it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing that I'm really, uh, you know, so used to being so structured that I'm, there's no rules here. So it's great. It's, uh, it's hard to create structure in an environment where there is no rules, but um, we'll do it. Absolutely. How many are you going to do? I'm going to probably run it. I'm hoping 24 a year to start is the goal. Do you know who your next two guests are? Don't tell the audience. I don't want to spoil it. But I do, yes. So yep. you, already, you already have it pretty structured. I mean, I've got probably... You know what the weird part is? Is like... you. I know, I know the next 10. Um, but it's this whole creative process of like actually shipping your creative work where you're like, holy shit, I'm going to actually put something out there and it's going to get judged. And then I also need to ask people to be a part of that when, you know, it could be crucified. So, so I'm your guinea pig. You're just like, <laughs> Matthews might be crucified. But yeah. Well, that's what, uh, it's just be man. Yeah. That's what other people have said as well. <laughs> the last five people that didn't come on the first show, but, um, you didn't tell me that. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's, let's go right to the beginning of how we met. Um, I mean, by my account, roughly 20 years, maybe 19, 20 years ago. Yeah, maybe 2003. Um, almost 20, 18. Yeah, yeah 18, 19. Might have, been, might have been 2003, 2002. But either way, we, we started working together in the fishing industry. Because you hired me. Yes, sir. Um, but how did we, uh, I'm trying to go back to how we actually hooked up for the first time. Was it? I just moved back. I think from, I was doing a, a tech startup in Colorado and I hated it because they were maybe do sales. My territory is Western slope. So I had to drive to Durango eight hours for a one hour meeting and not even come home with a PO. How um, many years did you do that? About one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not that long. Well, um, how many years were you out of school? How many years one. were you? Okay. I graduated school, went to that job, did where, well at it. I liked it, but. Where in Colorado? The company was in Denver and I was an engineer's assistant that was doing routing and switching, which I knew nothing about. Oh, wow. But they would give me a box and I would go in and just control C and then go to another <laughs> box or 500 boxes and control V, control V, control V, control V and hope to God that it worked. And um, then that was it. And that was it. And I was good at it, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I could talk to the customer maybe a little better than the engineers could. So then they moved me into sales. Yeah. And that's when I had to travel all these crazy distances. And that wasn't for me. You probably got to see some cool spots or remote spots in Colorado. Yeah. Too many times. Too lonely. I was 22. <laughs> my friends, they moved me to Vail when they moved me to sales so I could be on I-70 and cover my territory, which was cool. Skied a lot. But I had no life. I couldn't hang out with my friends. They were all, you know, yeah, that's the heyday the mountain too. and partying, and I'm out there driving to Durango. Yeah. So but I came up here, 
and went on a float with my old man. I think it was Mike Jansen. Oh, wow. And Jansen said, you should think about guiding. I guess you guys needed guides. Yeah. And I got it before. Um, I wasn't trying to do that again, but Mike suggested I talk to you or maybe my dad did, or maybe it was Bill Egan. Yeah. But that's how it initially came together. Yeah. And then we got together for a beer at the coach at the stagecoach and then they worked together it, for that. Turned into a few beers. <laughs> 30. <laughs> and then worked together that summer and then went off on the incredible Mexico adventure. Um, that was a great summer because you were obviously in the main shop. I was in the satellite in the back of the Orvis shop. Just yes. booking random trips, but we were in touch all day because technology is not what it was, you know, not what it is now. Yeah. That's um, a whole nother topic. And a lot of times it'd be three o'clock and we've done our job. Guides know what they're doing tomorrow and we go fish. Yeah. I remember some incredible days after work back then. Um, yeah. And then I think we started scheming up the Mexico trip, you know, halfway through the summer, maybe a little later. And that was, I mean, I, we were kind of ahead of our times on the no plan plan, right? I mean, we, <laughs> we knew we were going to go down to Ascension Bay at one point, but we had no idea where we were going to take us. And I can't tell you how often I think of that. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but our Palapa was $7 a night. That's right. I mean, the whole trip budget was like three grand for six weeks. Wow. Something like that. And to be clear, when yeah. you say we, in terms of having a plan, I thought you had a plan. <laughs> I fully trusted Dawes. Um, he knows what he's doing. He's got this. He's a pro. I'm just tagged along for the ride. Felt so lucky. But it was, I loved the way it went. We'd wake up in the morning and it'd be like, what do you want to do today? Give me three things. And I would do three things. And we'd be like, all right, well, here's the overlap. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And how we, uh, how we stumbled upon that little I don't even know what you call it I mean it was a it was a palapa essentially with some you know stick walls bamboo stick walls papaya playa yeah I mean at that time if you go there now it's a oh it's a bougie place yeah it's it's a little bit and that guy the jaguar came out in his chain (laughs) and asked us for our passports the first thing he said passports there's no way I'm giving this guy my passport yeah he was special a lot a lot of special uh memories and then we were looking at some pictures before we uh, we came into the studio, and you know, a lot of people are asking like, "What is the purpose of this show, and what is the name?" And you know, it's funny because it all actually ties back to a little bit of this moment. Um, and I need to get I need to connect with this guy again because I know uh, you remember Mike, yeah, in construction. How could I forget? And so we were driving, just a little backstory. So Brian and I, neither of us, neither one of us had ever caught a permit. I was kind of on a mission um, to catch my first permit. And for those of you who aren't familiar with permit fishing, it's just, you know, in the fly fishing world, it's a little bit of a pinnacle. It's a very, very hard fish to catch on a fly. And sometimes it can happen quick or sometimes it can take years. And I wanted to get it done. Anyhow, we, we meet a guy um, named Mike at the bar, and he ends up going fishing with us, right? He had to, oh, yeah. he had to get some clearance with his wife. And, and why don't you explain <laughs> what we did to go fishing each 
each with, day. In Azul, we had this terrible little rental car. Yeah. Uh, it was maybe a two-door, what was it, like a Honda Civic or something? I don't even know if it made it that clear. Um, and the Boca that road down there is terrible. It's all mud. It's often filled with puddles. Way worse you, then. And you have zero idea how deep those puddles are. So you're just cruising. And you hit your first one. It's a fun little side splash. You hit your second one, and you think the whole car is going down a cliff. Um, but we rocketed that thing back and forth. We yeah, were starting was... to make good times. We knew where all the holes were. But it was about a 40, 45-minute drive. Yeah, at least. Stash the thing at the bridge, take off our flip-flops, put on our gear, and wade out from the bridge to this flat where there's rumored to be crocodiles. There's a ton. It's amazing what I've seen since then. Oh, I'm so glad I didn't see them. Yeah, and there was a little swim involved, right? Across the That's right. That was a that was our I mean, it's amazing, right? You don't know what you don't know. Now I know. Like if you tell someone that you swam there, they would think you're absolutely fucking crazy. And your instructions like, oh, I got an email from a guy who said like <laughs> park at this bridge, uh, kind of walk along the mangroves and you'll see it out. That was it was pretty loose. But I'm pretty sure that was Brian O'Keefe that actually gave me those I think that's instructions. Right. Yeah. That was cool. And, it, you know, at that time, it was literally just three sentences in an email. Go here, do this. And that's what we were doing. So not, not to get away from Mike. So Mike, Mike gets clearance. He comes with us. Um, we don't catch permit. We've been doing this for a while. We might have seen one. And Oh, we did see one, not to interrupt. Yeah. The first day we went there, you were kind of showing me the ropes because I'd never saw water fly fished. Really? So I, I shadowed you for maybe three or four bones that you caught. Gotcha. And then you came with me and there was a big bone kind of facing perpendicular to us looking to our right. And he said, give that one a shot. And I threw it out there, totally amateur, hit it right on the head <laughs> and it immediately kind of spooked, but it slowly spooked towards us. And as it got closer, you're like, that's a permit. <laughs> so I probably ruined your first permit. No, well, you were, you were there. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. So Mike, Make a long story short, right? Mike Mike says to us, right? I mean, we he we we go back, and then he says on the car car ride back, "You guys doing this every day?" Hmm. And we said, "Yeah." And so is, fast, isn't it awesome? <laughs> yeah, it's great, right? Hold yeah. on. Um, and then fast forward, we see Mike at the bar a couple nights later, and just shake our heads and order a drink. And he says, "I want to show you guys something." And he pulls out his camera and shows us. Four permit pictures, and at that time, right, old school cameras, date stamped, and I was like, that's bullshit, and he was like, look at the picture, and then he's like, you're missing the whole point, and I was like, what, and he's like, look harder, and I was like, what, and he's like, look at the photo, and then I looked, and he caught all four of those fish, and in the background, you could see our hut, yeah, our, our $7 nut hut. So that's a, uh, that was, uh, he's like, I just don't think you guys want to catch one, but that was humbling. That was very humbling. But he was a rare, I mean, he was a good angler. Yeah. I think he won the gold cup. He did? Or the Holly. Yeah. A Holy couple of times. Yeah. I think he was an incredible angler and you could kind of tell by his vibe, right? He was just, he wasn't ostentatious. Not at he all. He was cool. Mike. Yeah. He was super. I mean, not that you're not cool, but that's, that's cool. Mike. <laughs> I need to connect. Yeah, that was a that was an amazing lesson, right? I mean, you want something 
too much. We do. He was into fishing. We're like, well, come with us. We'll show you the program, the whole yeah. deal. And yeah, we he got did, a he sweet did once, And then he's like, oh, I'm just going to sit back here and <laughs> catch permit. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and then we both ended up catching our first permit. We did. Yeah. Down in Ascension Bay. And then I was, uh, and of course, mine was tiny. Yours was like a really nice fish. That was a decent fish. Yeah, like 10, 12 pounds. I was so pumped that you, like, we were on different boats that day, but I knew all I'd been hearing about was your vision quest to catch a permit. Yeah. And when I got one and we're coming out, I was like, I hope to God Dawes got one because I'm going to feel really bad as sort of the trip add-on out here if I got a permit before him. Yeah, but at the same time, well, I I will never forget you walking in to the... uh, I think we were in separate rooms or you had just come home or we were in the same room, but you had just come through the door and you're like, sounds like we need to go catch a tarpon. I'll never forget that. That's right. Yeah, that was great. Um, and then, you know, we were reminiscing a little bit like about characters like Roger when we went to Chichen Itza. That was... That guy was unbelievable. That guy was unbelievable. What <laughs> Didn't he... So before we left, we're like, where's Roger? And then we went to his hut. And again, these huts have sand floors. So, and then we heard some moaning and some grunting. And Mm -hmm. Roger was digging a huge hole, right, in his floor? Yep. Yeah. And and burying, I, I don't, did you see, I don't know if I saw. Uh, I saw it. He had, it was when we were getting ready for our trip. But did you see what he was burying? Uh, no, but I saw him pull it up when we were getting ready to leave because he needed cash. He buried a bunch of cash. Wow. In the sand. And yeah, I mean, I, Roger was from, you know, a little color on Roger, right? He was from Rhode Island and that, I mean, this is a long time ago, but that's, there was the nightclub that burned down. Yeah. And he was there. He was there. We're, I don't think we're sure if he worked there. Unconfirmed. Unconfirmed. But. We do know that he had a truck full of belongings. And buried his cash. And <laughs> buried his cash in the floor of the hut. And then we got in his, or no, our rental Jeep at that time. I can't remember if it was his truck or our Jeep. I don't think we had the Jeep yet. Gotcha. I, I think, think we were in his truck. Wow. And, but Chichen Itza was amazing. Like I still, I had been to um, Angkor Wat. And kind of caught the uh, the ruin buzz, if you will. But Chichen Itza, because someone had tipped us off, like go spend the night and then get there at sunrise. Oh, we did. We we're, did. We're the only ones there. Yeah, it was absolutely fucking special. And I can't. I remember when we were leaving, like the people pouring into the place. That's right. Yeah, and the ball court. I think that was started my fascinations with the Mayan. They were smart. That was the best part is just seeing how smart they were. The acoustics in the ball court, like yep. that is insane. What's not that cool is that if you won, you died, but I guess it was cool to them. At the time. I guess. Yeah. Maybe it was tough. <laughs> You're the champion. Um, let's cut your head off. Weren't they the first to do the calendar? Yeah, basically, right? I mean, I, I they were I, off by like a quarter of a day or something. Yeah. And, all based on the moon. It was leap year. They, they missed leap year. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. It's pretty good. 
Well, remember the serpent that descends? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. On, on the solstice? The, yeah, on the vernal equinox and the... That's right. The vernal and the... What is the other one? The Anyhow, but right every year on the same day, it still happens. Snake descends the the steps of Pyramid Ill Kill, I think is the name of it, at Chichen Itza. Look at you. Yeah, it's insane. Historian. That's right. Um, and then... That that journey was obviously pretty amazing, and then we, I don't think we did, I mean, we did plenty of trips and saw each other a bunch, but we didn't, the last big one we did was in the Seychelles, and that was your first experience over there, right? That was amazing. I've been trying to go for a while, the stars just lined up for that one. That was, uh, that was special, and for some reason, I always remember that one I don't know what day it was, day three, day four. We were on a mothership, um, and it was you, me, and Rob in a boat, and you two going off on your own. And I, I, that's like one of my fondest memories of, because I was within earshot of you guys. I don't even know if you knew that, but it was... Uh, you were in the boat, right? I might have been in the boat. Or were you on your own? I think I was on my own on foot. And you guys were kind of walking and the guide, I think the guide was with you and you, you guys were just like, what the fuck is that? Like, I don't oh, know. Yeah, just catch it. Whack-a-mole. <laughs> that was so funny. Whack-a-mole. I had no idea we were pulling up, but it was so much fun. It's like, do it again. Yeah. Just throwing at those coral heads. You yeah. never know what's coming out. <laughs> Especially guys never been there. That was amazing. And then, you know, straight into a wild finish of the trip into into the uh the storm cyclone kenneth cyclone kenneth exactly remember I, how we didn't remember how they were like we're like this has to be a cyclone yeah and they were like no or or he didn't didn't it confirm was, it, it right it developed on top of us so i think by the time it was finishing and moving on it was officially a cyclone because i'll never remember when we find i mean because that was days later when we got back to mahe and no one had mentioned the name of the storm or even said it was a cyclone. And we got into the cab and we were driving back and the cab driver was like, oh, yeah. where were you guys? And we were like, oh, we were, you know, out um, on a mothership in this area. And he's like, oh, you were in the cyclone, cyclone Kenneth. <laughs> and the, uh, I'll never forget when they said, you guys got to go downstairs. And we were like, oh yeah, sure. Got it. Yeah. We'll be careful. And then the water started coming in, you know, basically where we were putting on our, where we were sitting at the picnic table. We put your shoes on every day on the boat. hundred percent. Yeah. And the was. rocky, I remember laughing though so hard. I mean, it was our last night. It was just a like overnight ride back to the plane in the morning to fly out. So there was no more fishing. So yeah. we, we got after it a little bit. Yeah. We, everyone's, I mean, those that stayed up sent it. I Thank mean, it God was, we did. Yeah. Cause I think I would have been <laughs> terrified. No, I mean, Sam Flea didn't look good in the morning. But sitting in the bed, we were, Dawes and I shared a little bunk room and we were just laughing our asses off at how hard we were rolling. Normally would have been terrified. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was real, right? I mean, after we read the stats, I mean, that, that was a, yeah, like, like, thank of, God I was a little deep Yeah. One of the most powerful cyclones to come through the area. 
Good uh, fishing though. That remember that last day where we only had like a two hour window to fish. Yeah, but weren't, you were the one that witnessed like weren't you with Samfly? I was with Samfly. Yeah, where was, there was like was that amazing. window. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, you couldn't miss. There was just GTs everywhere. That's incredible. Totally responding to the environment. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't. We saw like a tiny fraction of that, maybe a couple fish. But I think where you you guys were in the right spot, obviously. But you said it was something to witness. We're just really good anglers. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was uh, that was quite quite the trip. And then, obviously, it was amazing how good everyone's attitude was, though. I mean, we got stuck on the boat. We couldn't get off the boat. Flights got canceled. Food's running thin. Yeah. And then we didn't really know how we were gonna if we were definitely gonna be on flights home. But I, I do remember being very thankful for how. Uh, how great everyone's attitude was towards just sitting on a boat, especially when you're looking at where you're supposed I mean, remember at one point I was like, I'm going to fucking swim to that island. Yeah, it was getting a little desolate. Yeah, we were right there. I felt okay until the travel agent um, had done reroute plans for all of us. Do you remember this? <laughs> and you were the one talking to him, and you have everyone's plans, and you, I'm last, and you look at me, and you're like, all right, he's got you on a flight. It's going to be... Uh, yeah i think you were behind me or something like what yeah that was uh i was yeah could you say that again yeah that was uh and i look forward to the next one that's been a little delayed right um it's on the books right yeah it is but we rescheduled that one for yeah pandemic yeah is it april march 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 next year I'll be there. I love it. Well, let's uh, let's transition a little bit to your um, your story in the venture capital world. You're a very humble guy. You would never know the successes that you've had, but as one of your very good friends, they've come very quick. At least you know, looking at it from the peripheral. Do you think? you knew you were headed before for the venture world before you even got into it. I mean, that was, was that planned or that just struck or how how did that come about? It was an exploratory pursuit. Gotcha. So I'd worked for a startup before I came back here and then worked for you, um, worked for the paper. I was going to be a writer. I was Mm -hmm. doing classifieds. I was like, this really isn't writing. Um, and then joined (laughs) street account which was another local startup here in the fintech space. And that was a, that was a damn good company. Yeah. You love it. I really liked it. I really liked it. It And there were some great people there. Very good. Very smart. There was three founders. I was their first official hire. Um, actually Dave black was, I was the second, but it was small. We knew we had a good product, but we didn't know. We didn't really know what we were doing. Um, for example, we gave four traders at Goldman Sachs a free trial uh, just to see if they like the platform. We're trying to get feedback early as we're developing the product so that we don't have to invest in something no one wants. Yeah. And two weeks later, their head of their global sales and trading asked us for an enterprise-wide license for like 4,000 traders. <laughs> and I answered that call. And he's like, I need to see your pricing. Can you send it to me? You know, it's like, hold. Yeah. Uh, guys what are we, this is real. What's, what's our pricing? It's like, tell them you'll send it to them tonight. It's like, okay. So I said that. And then we had a four hour discussion of how the hell we should price the product. We'd never even thought about it. 
How many people were at the office at that Five. Time? Five. Wow. But that was fun. I mean, that part of being like being able to have an impact as a young kid to that level and something that's working was really fun. Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, and then Eddie Spaghetti, right? He was in the office. Yeah. We kept picking off like tangential worldcast people. <laughs> and he, uh, is he still in that space or no? I don't know. I know he's in Oregon, but that, I mean, that had to be an incredible, I mean, even to take that phone call, like that memory, I don't even, I mean, I, I do kind of remember that story, but that's, um, what an experience. I and mean, we hired a bunch of people locally. Uh, remember Derek who worked at the order shop? Yes, Incredibly I do. smart guy. Yeah. He's still there. Um, he's head of product. There was a guy named Casey Bonus who was a yep. ski bum and bartender, uh, but looking for something else. We got him on the phones and personality just killed it. He became the head of sales and part of the exec team. It was, awesome. it was a pretty fun ride. Yeah. And how long were you there? I was there two years. Two years. Two years. And then you knew you, you wanted to go to school, right? I did. Well, I didn't know I wanted to go to school, but we'd started looking at one of the founders. So there were three founders and two of them were a couple, mm -hmm. um, which is always tricky. They weren't married. They were just boyfriend, girlfriend. Sure. And that relationship was on the fritz. And she wanted out, nothing to do with it anymore. So there was a, some tension about buying her out. And we'd also realized this company was successful. We were cash flow positive after four months. Um, and we'd probably gotten above our ability to manage it. I remember mm -hmm. the sheriff came by and said, you guys aren't even a registered business in Wyoming. <laughs> and we're like, oh, shit. Um, so we started talking to VCs. And we called it VC Fridays because we were thinking we could do a venture capitalist to buy this partner out and then also give us a little more governance and expertise about mm -hmm. how to manage the animal we created. And that was my first sort of purview into what VC was. Sure. And I thought it was very, very cool because I love the entrepreneurial environment and I liked where they sat on the other side of working with a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, it was a very small industry back then. Uh, and at the time, you mean venture capital in its entirety? Venture capital was very small. Wow. It was nowhere near what it is today. And this is what, just call it 05? Yeah. Yeah. Probably right. 05, 06. Okay. Um, I knew I was in love with a girl who's now my wife. She was at UNC and you know, it's like when you're drifting a boat, I could see if I stayed here where I was going to be in 20 years and there's not optionality upstream. Sure. So I decided just go to business school, see if you can get a job in venture because you can't decide when you're 40, you're going to leave Jackson and go try that. Sure. And if I didn't like it, like I'd be very happy coming back here because I loved it. Sure. I loved it. Yeah. That's a great analogy. So you went into business school though with a flavor, like you, I mean, you were heading in that direction already. I was going there and I was going to try and find something in venture, which was impossible. Because sure. nobody, I was the only person in my class who probably knew what it was and mm -hmm. wanted to do it. Really? I did not know that. All my classmates were hedge funds and buyout shops because they were the hot, sexy thing, paying like high first year salaries. Um, so there's no on-campus recruitment. I mean, venture firms are small. Sure. Yeah, you know, they're less than six people. So it was kind of a DIY, you know, much like fishing, just try and go find it. Yeah. And I found one for my summer internship at a large VC called NEA um, that was based in DC and basically just found the right person with a project that they've been putting off and procrastinating. It was like, let me knock that out for you and let me work with the investment team. Yeah. 
And that was key. That had to be. Because I got the job, learned a lot. It was a good brand. That got me to um, the shop I was at previously, Questmark. Um, was there for 12 years, 13 years. Wow. And then we just spun out uh, a little over a year ago and started Harmonic. That's awesome. I think it's cool that, because, uh, I mean, part of it had to start with that phone call you described earlier. I mean, not too many people. I mean, you, you, it's an exciting place to be in, right? It's really exciting when you're, you're outside your comfort zone. I mean, mm-hmm. it's easy to show up to a meeting and know everything. Um, it's a lot more fun to show up and know nothing, yep. but be a little agile on your feet and just play the game. Yeah. Well, and there has to be a strong intuitive part to the whole thing. I mean, it has to be, right? There, it's huge. I mean, I'm still young in terms of the industry because the venture cycles are so long. Mm-hmm. I've really only seen maybe two cycles, and they're all different. And explain that. So the, the cycle is what, like five well, the, years? The returns mean? take a long time. Sure. So it could be 10 years after you made an investment before you know whether it works or not. Sure. You might have indications, but you never know. Gotcha. And that's a long time without any points on the board. Yep. Whereas at a hedge fund, you can kind of see every day where you stand, yep. what you've done. So you think you're doing the right thing, but you don't always know. Yep. But I've really learned that the, the team is everything. Yeah. It's the right team. I mean, that is, that, that can't be overemphasized. You know, a great team can take a C idea and make it a home run company. Sure. And then you see a lot of brilliant ideas. Get that killed. Just, just, they get squandered because the team's terrible. Yeah. You could probably almost parlay that into any business, really. 100%. I would say. But it's hard to, hard to qualify those people because, you know, I remember my first investment that worked. I loved the entrepreneur and was like, those are the key ingredients. And I was constantly looking for those same ingredients. Huh. But that was short-sighted because there's other forms of ingredients that might be just successful in other ways. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I imagine, I mean, you, you have the constitution, like you're, you're very good at listening and maybe not jumping out in front of a conversation or having to flex muscles. And, you know, I know nothing about the venture capital world, but I have to imagine, right? People are coming in and pitching you. Yep. Right? And then you could either, in retort, tell them how great you are or sit back, listen, and ask the right questions. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's some pursuit. Sometimes we're pursuing companies and we're trying to get their attention. But when we're in front of a management team, I really like to sit back and watch how they operate, especially if it's more than just the founder and CEO. Yeah. Like a classic example is you ask a marketing question and their head of marketing's there and the CEO answers it. Yep. That's a problem. Wow. Yeah. That's a problem. Probably on multiple levels, multiple right? levels, yeah. but it's not a cohesive team. He doesn't trust us at a marketing to answer, you know, a question that's in the domain that person was hired to manage. Yep. Huh. It's fascinating. How would you describe your investment strategy? And has that changed or, I mean, evolved or is it, you know, is there a constitution to it that you, you stick pretty tight to? I think uh, I'm lucky to have great partners. I have really good partners. We've been together so long. You know, it's like working with you. It's just there's no there's no BS. Very transparent. Um, and what we look for, the key metrics um, and signals we look for in investment, haven't really changed. 
What has changed is the overall market. I mean, venture capital is now a big industry. Um, and now I get like five calls a week from MBA students trying to get into venture. Wow. Which is scary because whatever they're going after is usually the next shoe to drop. Yeah. Um, but it's very much in vogue. It's matured quite a bit. There's more capital than ever. So you have to react to those market dynamics, but still maintain your initial thesis, if that makes sense. It does. It does. I'm just blown away by how fucking new it is. I mean, I had no idea that, you know, what, 16 years ago, it was pretty small. It was small. It got a little bit of, of fizz in the, in the late 90s mm-hmm. with the dawn of the internet era. Um, but it was short-lived with the dot-com crash. But that was the first time you saw capital coming into venture that wasn't cottage VCs. Um, for 20, 30, maybe 40 years before that, it was really, really small cottage operations of single VCs, maybe small teams doing very, very cool things. Yeah. That's wild. Do you, I mean, as someone who sits on the peripheral of the VC world in, you know, at a very far distance, I would say, you know, sometimes I get the sense that VC could get a bad rap, but then I obviously am super tight with you and get confused by that. Is that, is that true? And if so, why is that? I mean, it's fair, but I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, how much the industry has attracted more capital and the new players that are coming in. Um, There's some great VCs out there that are incredibly brilliant people, have operating companies, provide a ton of value to the founders that they back. Um, Their first call always for an entrepreneur when they need any questions or guidance. Uh, But lately, there's a lot of people. It's easy to raise money. It's easy to Mm -hmm. deploy capital. Uh, The markets have been doing very well. And people think that they are really good when that's not necessarily (laughs) true. It's not necessarily. It's easy to be good when times are good. Sure. Um, It's not easy to be good when they aren't. And I think there's some people that are flouting it a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. You see some ridiculous vanity plates in Palo Alto uh, that are just embarrassing. Wow. Um, And there's there's very little diversity. uh, And that's a real problem. And it's, it's a social problem on so many levels but the tricky thing about venture capital is you're making big investments and big bets on people and a lot of the deal flow comes through trusted networks people you know sure so the deal flow comes up through the same channels as your social network and it's very hard to break that just because as a human i feel better about something you're sending me than someone i've never heard of sending me sure and, and there's a trust factor to that, probably. There's a, yeah, exactly. You just trust it more. Sure. And you're like, this is worth digging into, rather than like an immediate no. Um, and so, like, we have a relationship with Howard University where we do stuff, um, and we're trying to get kids involved in our firm, which is great. And a lot of VC firms are doing those types of things. But until, you know, social classes and clicks are more normalized across the board. Mm -hmm. I don't see the channels of deal flow changing. Sure. That makes sense. But we need to try. Yeah. And these days, right? I mean, it's, it's, it would be nice. It'd be really nice. And there's entrepreneurs now that we talked to a company, a very good company um, that was interested in taking capital from us, but 
he refused to do it because right now we're, you know, three white males. Sure. And I was disappointed that we weren't going to get the deal, but I had tremendous respect for his solidarity and conviction. Yeah. And you could right? I mean, you could fall on either side of that and argue all day long. The point is like, let's make a change. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Some people just take the money. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I respected this guy. Well, that seems like a good um, transition into change, period. And obviously, uh, this being the first episode, um, you know, I wanted to just touch on the subject real quickly because it's been a long time since I've made a big change, and I have, and it's hard. Um, Especially this kind of move from a structured workplace framework mindset whatever the fuck you want to call it you know into shifting mind flow of entrepreneurship consultancy etc and i'm not gonna lie like i I am i am (laughs) you know sometimes a ship without a sail right now and it's you know it's young for me i mean it's it's probably you know not even two months so i'd say very young but um, you have gone through a similar change as well. And can you relate to that? I mean, in that I can hundred percent relate to that. It's funny because one of the reasons I've always valued our friendship, um, is because you're a little bit older than me and we think alike and you often tell me things that I know I can already see are on my horizon. Mm. And I love that because it's kind of a guiding light of think about this ahead of time. Here's what Mike just went through. Um, and it really, really helps. It's awesome. And this is the first time where I think I've been on the other side. Absolutely. I went through something before you. Yeah. I mean, I think I came to you and I mean, there was probably two other people, right? Where you were my kind of sounding boards. Cause I, you know, it's not like I didn't go, you know, make a change without severe thought. I mean, it was a long, long time coming. Do you feel better now on this side? I do. I think there's no doubt it was the right time and decision for me to make. Um, I would be lying if I didn't, wasn't nervous, a little bit lost and apprehensive a little bit. Um, but I definitely go back and forth with how much of that is, you know, this mind tunnel that I've been in. I mean, if you do something for 20 years, right? I mean, you're going to be, absolutely. you know, it's like a sledding hill, right? That it hasn't snowed for a while. I mean, there's one track, you go down the track, you get back up and you go down it again. And so for it to snow and not know which way to go, you know, I, it's, it's, it's the right decision for sure. It's definitely, you know, got me a little lost, but then I take a look at the actual, you know, probably because I'm looking at the end zone, not the journey, which is typical for me. But here we are, right? I mean, this is a new journey. We're doing this today. We're in a studio. Yeah, we're in a studio. So it's the little things that um, I think I need to keep reminding myself. And it's the actual practice. You know, like I've gotten my morning routine now down now. Like I know there's some things I should do that will help point my day in the right direction. Don't have the day down, don't have the night down, but it'll come hopefully. But how, uh, 
I mean, how was that for you in terms of, I mean, because you went from a larger company, right, to yeah, just was, three of you. It was really tough, and you could feel it, as I'm sure you did. It was coming for years Yeah, that, um, you know, one of our partners older was going to retire, and what did that mean for the rest of us that have been doing a lot of the investment program, um, most of it. Um, and I just remember feeling so unhappy and having so much anxiety in those years before. Cause you know, this is coming, uh, but you can't really do anything yet yep. and you don't know what you're going to do. And that's hard to deal with. Um, you just want comfort in that consistency, but being out of it, you know, after six months, and I was fortunate that, you know, two of my partners, we just went out and did our own fund. So That's, there was, that there was some money. consistency yeah. there, but it was a very different, you know, no salary. We had to go raise money. Sure. Uh, we didn't know how long we could go or hold our breath in doing that. Uh, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of stress. You're like, how am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to do this? Um, but at the end of the day, I find that you, we, we mentally sort of over bias the negative scenarios where we're playing narratives in our head of what's going to happen in the future. Sure. And we paint these doomsday pictures and we often overestimate how bad they are. Um, yeah. And we do sometimes with how good they are, but I think more so on how bad they are and just being comfortable with uncertainty. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be in that position again. I'll never have that much anxiety about something. If I don't feel happy in what I'm doing, yeah. I'm not going to be that successful. And I need to change. And I'm comfortable with that now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of what I'm, you know, what I'm dealing with because it is so young is I am not comfortable with inaction. And I think that's been trained into me. So I think, you know, part of my mind derives worth from that, right? Like where you wake up, like I got to be doing something right now to be, you know, some sort of work. Yep. Whereas if I wake up and you know, go on a mountain bike ride. Could that be worth more? Of course it could, but that's not what's trained into me. So, you know, I think until time will probably comfort that I'm presuming, you know, it will. And you're, you're staying active and just, as long as you stay active, you will unearth things and paths will show themselves to you. Then you just have to have confidence. No different than fishing. Just go back to that flat, find that permit, just keep going. And if you keep going, it's going to show. Yeah, no, and it's, uh, you know, I, like I said, there's no doubt it was the right decision, the right time, the company's great, it's, um, it's new, and it's, uh, it is a little unnerving, but again, you know, it leads to, uh, to stuff like this, which is phenomenal. Have you set any fictitious, like, timelines in your head of you know, I'll be in this mode for X amount of time. And if that path isn't there by that point, I'm going to do Y. Yes. You have. Yes. But the problem is, is that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm again, like the inaction thing. So I, I, I can't sit with it, which I should be able to. Like I've got, I've got scenarios in my head that could play out to the perfect set up and it, it all revolves around what you were saying, right? Reducing the anxiety, family, right? Family, I'm in that time where this is a precious time. So I have all these parameters and those are not going to change. Um, but I have a scenario that could play out exactly like I think it could, 
or I have a backup and then I also have, let's call it the wild card, right? So I don't want to set anything now that could reverse uh, any of the other options. Mm -hmm. um, but in doing that, right, there's a lot of inaction because <laughs> you're almost, I mean, you know, I, I, it probably goes back to self-worth, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know that feeling. I mean, I know that feeling where you just don't feel productive. You don't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. And I'm sure it ties back to childhood, you know, being a complete fuck up at times. And, you know, like I got to do something to make the societal norms, you know, that I'm used to make me feel like I'm doing something, which is total fucking bullshit. But, um, I would, I would prioritize your pass. So like you, I'm sure you have, you know, your preferred, the one you're talking about that could work out as a perfect scenario, the backup and the wild card. Yeah. Whatever that preferred scenario is, I would, I would just focus on that. Yeah. Um, passionately. And you, you know, don't underestimate your ability to manifest that happening. Yeah. You, and you control a lot of it. And the problem is, is, you know, is the preferred plan of action because it's easier. And that's what I struggle with right now. Right. Like I'm, you know, there's plenty of stuff that I, I could have kept doing what I was doing because it was easier. I'm not going to do that is the preferred plan, you know, course of action. So, you know, and that's, you know, that's what's led us here, led me here. I mean, you know, what, what, a, what an incredible platform to get people like yourself to come in here and even have the chance to discuss these things. And if that doesn't point, I mean, that's got to help point you in the right direction, I would think. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, um, it's opening, you know, new things that I, I mean, I have never really, you know, I've done practice doing this, but you know, this is all new and it's great. And the cool thing is, is that I feel like a fucking kid. Like, I love this. You know, I'm having fun. Um, at times I'm lost because I'm having to do a lot of things that I don't know much about. But ultimately, right, when we reflect on those things, I imagine that's what we remember. Yeah. And you're going to get comfortable with the stage you're in now. I mean, I remember when we first left our other firm and we're going out on our own and we were off the payroll, of the old shop, it was done. Mm -hmm. I had a set number in my mind, you know, I'm going to take X amount of dollars to put towards this just as family expenses. Mm -hmm. And if I burn through that and we're nowhere, it's time to, you know, rethink and go somewhere else. And I burned through that, you know, 50% faster than I thought, or 150% <laughs> faster than I thought I did. It was gone so quick. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd, I'd seen enough where I just, you know, wanted to keep going. It was motivating, but you get comfortable. You don't need much. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And it's easy to say, you know, I've had some luck. Um, I didn't at that time. It wasn't in the position I am now, but you know, the data says that people that make $70,000 are no less happy than people that make 2 million. You know, once you take care of your basic needs, yeah. There's really no incremental happiness that comes along with wealth. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're, if you're right, if you're making a lot of money, you're just ticking the money box. That's right. That's the crazy thing is there's so many other boxes, so many other boxes, but too much of our culture is focused on that number. What's your number? Yeah. That's, yeah. which is bullshit, but uh, people get wrapped up in that. 
Well, I mean, that's kind of the purpose of this, right? I mean, I the societal norms in that sense drive me fucking crazy. Me too. Um, you know, and you could probably lump in another box in that status or desire being the only thing that someone's chasing. Like, it's just, you know, it's getting farther and farther away from the present moment, which is sad to me. Well, the worst one about the money is that people think they could be anyone they want, like they could be anyone they want if they have that number. And that's the worst. That's why some VCs get a bad rap. Yeah. Um, having that number doesn't give you the right to be whoever you want to be. No. You still need to be a good person. Yeah. You need to be decent. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, and, and maybe it's because of growing up, you know, and being such a, renegade fuck up whatever you want but I, I feel like I learned a lot of those lessons at you know or at least touched on them at a young age and it's plainfully obvious to me like if you hit that number and you get on your plane and you think that your problems aren't going to be there with you it's amazing but I feel like there's a lot of that out there there's a lot of it is your problems increase you know people pay more for childcare when they have the means to do it sure and that has a huge family repercussion um, yep. not spending as much time with your wife or your kid, just outsourcing it to everyone. Um, and that's a huge source of unhappiness. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, and it's so stupid cause it's, here's something free that could be the most valuable, enjoyable part of your life is your family. Yeah. Why try and outsource that? Yeah. And I, it's amazing. I remember, uh, the early years in meeting Sanfley and, and Sanfley will get on here. He's, a mutual friend of ours, one of my best friends and, you know, watching their, you know, how they operate as a tribe, you know, even 15 years ago was just astonishing to me. Like, where is your, where is your son? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Hmm. Well, we all take care of each other. And that was, had such an impact on me. And I think that's honestly, I know it is, right? That is a part of travel that I'm addicted to, is seeing how these other cultures operate, especially in that manner, where it's like, you don't have babysitters because you don't need to, you don't even know what they are. I mean, that is fascinating to me. It's amazing. It's excellent. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, I feel like we've lost, lost touch with that. I feel it more here too, moving from DC. Hopefully we're moving. I mean, we're committed to move. We just got to find a house to buy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, Anna had her surgery in November. We'd only been here for four months. We had to go out of town. We left our kid here. He was four. Yeah. And the level of reach out from the people we'd met in just a short time from our son's school, you know, we're going to take him to a play date. We're going to have him spend the night. We're going to do a sleepover. We're sure. taking him camping is nothing like you would see in DC. Huh. Nothing. Well, that's good to hear. It is good. Yeah. And there's, right, there's probably, like everything, there's more levels to that. I mean, it just keeps going. All the way down to exactly what you said before, where you get to Sanfley's house when they're living in a school apartment, but feeding 30 people every night and looking after all the kids. I mean, it's... So uh, cool. It is very cool. Well, let's... um. Let's jump on to some thought topics here. I've got a couple down. We're going to we're going to do these each episode. Oh boy. 
The, um, do you ever think about someone to call, like make, you know, send yourself an email or make a note and then you're literally about to do it. And then the, the fucking person calls you it happens all the time. <laughs> it happens all the time. It's uncanny. I mean, it's un- it is. It's unbelievable. And there has to be more to that. I mean, I don't, it, and it seems to come in waves for me. Like, I don't know. And it, it happened like a month ago where I was literally had them written down. And one of the instances I was picking up the phone and then, then that person's calling. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. There's, I mean, there has to be more. There's something there. It happens to me with a certain subset of friends and people. Mm-hmm. Um, totally detached from how frequently I speak with them, but it seems to happen with the same personalities and friends, which I don't know what that means. It's just, a you know, some spiritual communication chain that you think it's cyclical, like, like your butt, you yeah, know, maybe that, you know that maybe. there's so much time has passed and you, you both need to like our washing machines on the same speed. <laughs> it's, it's kind of fucked up. All right. Next thought topic. Um, and this could just be me, but is voicemail a thing of the past? Because I feel like overnight, no one is leaving voicemails anymore. And I don't know if that is a, uh, you know, a pandemic deal or what, but it's, it scares me for the fact that it could be the pace of communication, right? That it's moving so fast that you don't have time to hear the fucking beep and leave a message. I think that's true. I mean, I'm guilty. I hate, I'm guilty too. I hate voicemail. And my mom will be like, hey, you didn't get my voicemail? I'm like, no. And I'm always getting reminders, oh, your mailbox is full. Your mailbox is full. And I hate yeah. having to go in and clear it out, <laughs> even though I don't have to listen to them all. I can just delete them. But voicemail, I think there just needs to be a new interface. I mean, the, the way you consume voicemail is still archaic. It is. But do you think that that could be a problem with the pace in which people are moving? I mean, it's, I, I agree with you there, right? Let's just call the, the voicemail platform. It sucks. But I tend to think like, I almost want to start leaving messages and then like ask a question at the end of the message. Cause I guarantee you no one listens to the full voicemail. Yeah. If I get a voicemail from someone, I'm just calling back. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, or I, don't, I don't listen to it. It seems like people send texts too. They do. Yeah. And like beep, hang up, text, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's uh, I feel like it happened quickly is all, all I'm saying. It doesn't, I don't think it's because people don't have time. I mean, people are listening to podcasts, right? Yeah. And maybe. those are much longer form. Uh, sure. Require more focus. And I think you need, you know, like a, a voicemail flow on a better interface that's enjoyable to go through. Yeah, well, maybe that's your like maybe, stream of voice. Maybe that's the next thing. No one take that. <laughs> this is on the record, so <laughs> ideation is recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been riding your bike at all? I did yesterday. Yeah. And I did maybe a week ago. Where'd you go? Uh, Phillips, both times. But I was kind of sick. You know, I was kind of sick for a while. Yeah. Um, something took me down. Some foodborne illness. That was about a two or three weeker. Yeah. Not good. I, uh, I struggled yesterday. I think I just, I can't tell if I suck at mountain biking am weak minded when it comes to exercise or there's something medically wrong, but I've been in all all of those thoughts. (laughs) So confident out of the gates. And I was following, you know, Matt McMillan, 
I rode with him. Yeah. I rode with him yesterday and, you know, I was confident in the beginning and then he started talking about going on, doing the, the, I don't even know what it's called, the rock ride, you know, 150 miles. And I was like in a fucking day and then knew I was already. And then I think it had to do with like the mind game of trying to follow him and just didn't feel like I was making any progress. But side note to that is I did get on the Peloton today and killed it. So progress. Yeah. Little, little progress that we were talking about before, but I just can't tell if I suck at it or not. Well, some people have just different anatomies. I mean, I'm, I'm not an endurance person Yeah. and I can do the four hour climb, but I'm not going to do it, you know, as well as the guy who is an endurance guy. I'm a sprinter. Yeah. It might have something to do with being six feet tall with a 28 inch inseam too. Like, yeah, (laughs) you you need arm pedals. (laughs) (laughs) oh man what's the uh what's the book that's made the biggest impact on you recently that's a really good question um and i forgot to i'd probably say in most recent was probably sapiens but that's so cliche but i really liked that book i just uh i just read the sample of that the other day that was a good one because it the, the part that stuck with me was that how much of what we think we should be doing are just constructs erected fictitiously. Explain that a little more. Um, so in order to have more power be in a position, you could create a religion and get people to buy into that. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of set up walls um, or a political system that people believe is true, but you've really just invented it. It's not true at all. Yeah. It's just a thought. Um, so sometimes you think you're not doing the right thing. You know, maybe I should stay in my job and just have that steady paycheck because that's the construct that exists. Societal norm. But those constructs aren't real. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing real about them at all. That's the part I really liked with that book. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm How gonna, about you? Um, I'm reading um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search of Meaning for the Second time. The first time I only got to like the logo there. Have you read that? No. Oh, put it, read it. It's, um, it's a psychologist that was, you know, had the manuscript when he went into the concentration camp and lost it and then made it out alive and reconstructed it. And it is fascinating. Um, but he, he switches gears. The first half of the book and what I realized is I read the book and then um, when he got out of the camps, I didn't finish the book. So now reread the first part because it's that good. In fact, I'll probably be saying this again in a couple of years. I will read it again. Absolutely. Um, Wait, so you read half the book before? I did. And yep. now you're reading the whole book. Yep. That's kind of a fun way to do it. Yeah, I couldn't relate to the um, the other part earlier, so I bailed. Oh, interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. But it's all about, you know, freedom is freedom to your attitude is the only thing that no one can take from you, right? And there is like that is um, yeah, that's a hell of a lesson. That's a hell of a lesson. Yeah, I mean, they can take everything. They can take everything you've got except for your freedom to choose how you act and your attitude. My four-year-old reminds me that the other day I was tired, didn't sleep, some late nights working, and I was being short with them. 
you know, like we're going to bed now. You're not yep. brushing your teeth. You got to do the pull up, all that. You know, you know when you're just a tired parent. Oh yeah. He's like, Dad, you tired? Like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, It's probably my fault, Dad, but you know what? Don't worry about it. You'll get a good sleep tonight. I'm like, God, you're. I need to just drink that mindset. Yeah. No. I get it you all. You know what I that. should have said? Have you read Siddhartha? I have, but it's been a while. That's a that's what I read probably annually, once a year, talking about change. Yeah. That is the best book about change and how to handle it. I'll read it again. That's a really good one. And it's like a hundred pager. I like yeah, it's small. It's very small. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the story, but it's the story of the Buddha. Yeah. Written by uh Herman Hess, who was like a German philosopher. Gotcha. Which is kind of interesting, like East meets West, but yeah, makes it very understandable and a simple fiction character type narrative. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. I, I think I read that like 20 years ago, but a lot about the anxiety you feel is because you're searching too hard for what you're searching for. Yep. So you're blinded. So like in a position like you're in or I was in, where you're, you know, in between what's next, that can be paralyzing. Yep. But that anxiety will take over and make it more paralyzing. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna read that once I'm done with Frankel's book. Well, thanks, man. This has been great. I really appreciate I all, of, all of your input and stopping by, and I look forward to uh, more of it and more of you being here. It'll, uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. What are we fishing? Um, maybe tomorrow. I'm already fishing tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> 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 tough but i'm excited about that part of the new the new lifestyle yeah it's the summer of dawes yeah except it's going quick it is going quick summer can go into winter yeah yeah fall absolutely well thanks again man i really appreciate it anytime man i love it love it hope you enjoyed this episode of permit to think my hope is this podcast offers meaningful conversations and stories from the fringe of societal norms we'll see where it goes Next episode, we'll hear from famed fishing guide Vance Freed. It's a story that will make an impact on your commute, your day, and likely even your perspective. But we're just getting started, and the exact path of this series is unknown. But we're going to give it a shot. Be sure to subscribe and support the podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you are on. Also, forward this show to anyone you know you feel might like where this ship is sailing. Out for now.